You're listening to. Listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu, and I'm Rira Yu, and this is the first Books and Boba episode of 2023. Rira, Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Yeah. Um, but of course, if you guys are not ready for the New Year, don't worry. Lunar New Year is coming up at the end of January, so you can hold on to your resolutions. It's only practice New Year for the real New Year coming yes. up. You're of the rabbit. Um, if you're wondering why we're coming at you with our uh, book discussion about a week or so late, it's because um, right before the New Year, I came down with COVID and just recently emerged from my quarantine so um apologies for that um but what a uh, way to end 2022 i know right (laughs) i was doing so good and then all of a sudden and it wasn't like so i caught it probably at a friend's christmas gathering which wasn't really that big one of my friends from that gathering tested positive so she let everyone know and out of everyone who went to that gathering i was the only one that caught it so lucky me i guess so, like, how has it been uh, with living with your partner? Have you just been, like, secluding yourself in, in your oh. room? <laughs> I mean, we also live with her mother. So I've been literally just isolated. It's essentially like living in a quarantine hotel. Um, I just get delivered food twice a day. And um, other than that, I just, you know, was left the heck alone. Um, the good thing is I was able to quarantine in my master bedroom, which has an attached bathroom. So, you know... Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Didn't have to contaminate our common areas. But uh, um, I definitely starved for human interaction. So I'm super happy to be talking to you right now, Rita, even though... Oh, that's that's you as the extrovert. I feel <laughs> like if I was in quarantine, I would be completely fine. But um, <laughs> well, was... I'm glad that you're feeling better. I was very worried, uh, worried about you. And I was just like, wow, the Rona caught him. Like, after all these years. And and the thing is, like, now that I've caught it, I don't feel any bolder. Now I'm even more, like, worried out there. It's like, I was safe and I still caught it. That means I need to be extra safe now. Yeah, I had a lot of uh, holiday plans with friends and whatnot. And all of them, they didn't get COVID, but they got, like, the flu or RSV. There's a lot lot of of plagues going going around. (laughs) (laughs) So it ended up, like, I... I hung out with my family, but for a very short period of time. Uh And then I was left to my own devices. And I was like, wow, everybody, you know, everybody is sick. I guess it's a good thing that I'm pretty much by myself now. (laughs) But anyway, I hope everyone is having a good New Year so far. At least a better one than Marvin (laughs) health-wise. Yeah, I mean, it's a late start, but I'm excited to get... 2023 for Books and Boba started. Um, we are, um, of course, discussing our December slash January book pick, um, Babel or Babel uh, by R.F. Kuang. Uh, we have split this book into two parts. So um, for this episode, we will be discussing the first 
um, two parts or books of Babel, and we will be discussing the rest of it um, for our January episode. With that said, um, we will be discussing all plot points within the first um, 12 chapters. So if you have not read up to there or don't want to be spoiled, um, you know, catch up and listen in to our discussion. Um, we will not be discussing anything past chapter 12 because we have not read it yet. Um, but if you have finished the book and want to discuss, please let us know on our Goodreads forums. And we will try to incorporate your comments um, in our January episode. But yeah, should we get started? Uh, yeah, sure. All right, so Babel, or the Necessity of Violence and Arcane History of the Oxford Translators' Revolution, it takes place in the 1830s, and it follows a Chinese-British boy named Robin Swift. And he is taken to England, or more specifically London, the World Center for Translation, and more importantly, the magic of silverworking. So silverworking is the art of manifesting the meaning lost in translation using enchanted silver bars. And it has made the British Empire unparalleled in power, and it continues to run the engine of uh, the empire's quest for colonization. So book one and book two, there's quite a lot of time passes um, across those two books. So book one begins in 1828, where Robin is unnamed at this point, and he is the only survivor in his village from a cholera outbreak. And then uh, towards and towards like halfway around book one, he you know, he is old enough to enroll into the Royal Institution of uh, Translation, or better known as Babel, at Oxford College. And the book continues on through the terms that he studies uh, at Babel. So a number of years pass um, in book one and book two. Uh, but before we get into the details of each book, Marvin, what did you think uh, overall, first impression? Well, I've been a longtime fan of Rebecca's work, um, Arv Kwan's work, and I just really enjoyed her take on dark academia, or at this point still just like, academia with dark undertones because we are talking about the British Empire at the height of its like power, right, during the Victorian era. Um, or at this point, it starts pre-Victorian. It's- yeah, then, it's the Georgian era. And I think Victoria, doesn't Victoria come into power sometime within this uh, time period? So right now, King William IV is in power. And then uh, towards the end of book two, you get to Victoria's uh, coronation. So that's yeah. around 1837, I think. Yeah. And, you know, like Rira said, this book spans at this point, probably like, what, like 10 years um, yeah, probably. <laughs> probably more like eight years, right? Because um, Robin gets rescued, quote unquote, when he was like around 10, I want to say. And one would assume, I mean, if we are mapping it to modern day, matriculates into Oxford when he's 18-ish. I don't know if the ages were, the 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 time of enrollment was the same as it is now. <laughs> it could have been younger back then, but... Uh, yes, he is a he is a late teen by the time he gets into Oxford. Yeah. And, you know, reading these first two books, it reminded me of like the first half of the Poppy War when it was still just like a war academia book. 
before it turned into like a grim dark war story. Um, so you know, knowing what Arv Kwong likes to do to her readers, I am bracing myself for the inevitable violence, um, as alluded to by the title. Um, but really enjoying like the not only the interactions between the Robin's cohort at Oxford, but also just the world building of the, the magic system of silverworking as like an allegory for British imperial power, right? Colonial power. The fact that they take language from their colonial states to enrich their own power um, is like, it's really smart and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, this was probably the most anticipated fantasy book of 2022. Uh, Babel came out in August. And even before that, even before publication, uh, there were just there was just so much buzz from the book community who received the arcs. And um, you can really tell that Rebecca was an Oxford student at <laughs> one point because her descriptions of the campus and the culture there, you can't really it's like insider's information. You cannot get that level of detail if you did not experience it for yourself. Yeah, and I remember her posting our- about like studying in a library in Oxford and being in front of two statues of bearded white men, just like staring at her while she like was undergoing her language studies. Yeah. Um, for background info, uh, Rebecca Kwong, she has two master's degree, one master's in uh, Chinese studies from Cambridge, and then she has a master's in contemporary Chinese studies from Oxford. And she is now studying uh, for her PhD in East Asian languages and literatures at Yale. So she is very well into academia. (laughs) And you can tell in the book that she knows her stuff and that she did an incredible amount of research. And uh, for me... I guess like when we think about dark academia, the things that come to mind is um, obviously like the allure of um, high intellectual characters. Um, You have um, you have usually it's like a magic system within a secret society uh, and there is a murder in, in like the middle of it all. So. I don't know what people expected the magic system to be, but I was pleasantly surprised that it was low, quote unquote, low magic. So it was very practical magic um, and not so much like high fantasy, which I really appreciated. How long did it take you to get wrap your mind around like the concept of silver working, like with match pairs and using language and what's lost in translation? Um, I mean... The concept of it, I got it right away, but the science of it, I was a little bit confused on how it actually works, but I had to really suspend my belief on that. I was just like, <laughs> I was like it's alchemy, just <laughs> just go with the flow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's explained that the reason that magic works is because silver is made using mercury, and mercury is also another name for Hermes, the messenger of the gods. And so there's some like mystical stuff going on there. But well, I guess the concept of like, because the way that the silver working works is you write one word in English, right? And then one word in a foreign language. And then the silver bar, I guess, um, metabolizes the difference, like whatever 
meaning is lost in translation between the original language and English, like forms the magic, right? It, cre- it creates an effect. And it kind of reminded me of, um, strangely enough, on Full Metal Alchemist, like the idea of equivalent exchange, whereas energy, it's like, you know, conservation of energy, right? Like energy cannot be lost. So, you know, that magic, that meaning goes somewhere. And so the bar manifests that as a real world effect. And I think that's how I explained it to myself in my brain, how the science of it worked. Yeah, I, I agree that it did remind me of Full Metal Alchemist, uh, also because there were a lot of rules to it as well, <laughs> and it, rules that are based on science. So yeah. um, I was I was really impressed by the, the magic system, I'm, and I'm sure it gets more in detail as we go into book three, four, and five, because we, we've only kind of like gotten a taste <laughs> of what the silver bars can actually do. I did clock the um, Chekhov's silver bars, how to destroy themselves, that I'm sure will come into play somewhere in book four or five. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess the easiest way to go about our discussion is to, I guess, go over the plot of, I guess, the plot points for book one and book two. So as we mentioned, um, book one begins in 1828, Canton. Uh, Robin, who is unnamed at at this point, is the only survivor in his village from a cholera outbreak. He is the only person in his family uh, who is a survivor. And he is, quote unquote, rescued by Professor Lovell, a white British uh, professor of a white British man from Oxford. And he uses silver to heal uh, Robin. Yeah. And, you know, just to reiterate, he has a name, just not a name that means anything to the white man, right? So, But we don't know what the <laughs> name is. That's the thing. He is an unnamed character until he chooses the name Robin Swift, which is uh, a name based on Gulliver's travel. And you find out that Robin had a very peculiar childhood because not many Chinese boys in Canton grew up with a governess, a, a white governess, teaching them how to speak English perfectly and to read and comprehend uh, different uh, different English phrases. So you kind of get a hint that Robin has been prepped for this moment to be plucked out of Canton and to be uh, brought aboard the ship to take him to London. Yeah. I mean, at this point in the story, I was already I mean we're already suspicious of Oh yeah Professor never Lovell. trust the white man in a story. Yeah. <laughs> but you know I think I like Robin was holding on to hope that maybe this guy is like maybe he's just very gruff because he's British but he you know has a soft center somewhere. Um that illusion was destroyed within the within the first few chapters. But I did like the fact that Robin was slowly starting to put together that like he could have saved his mom if he wanted to. Like Professor, Professor Lovell, like when he found out from the housekeeper that Professor Lovell was just chilling in Macau for two weeks. I think that's the first like, that was the first inkling that this guy doesn't really care. Yeah, it was like the first inkling that, okay, like how did he show up in that village right on time for uh, Robin to be healed? Um, what was your What was your opinion of him saying, hey, uh, forget your Cantonese, Mandarin is more important. <laughs> um, 
Because I feel like we still have that mindset today in modern society. Yeah, I mean, it goes a little deeper than that, right? Like Mandarin is was the official state language of China at the time as well. Um, you know, China is a country of a lot of different languages and dialects, but the official language of the government um, was Mandarin Chinese. And, you know, there's, there's a class aspect of it too, right? Like you know, Cantonese, as with a lot of dialects, are typically spoken by commoners, right? It's it's a Mandarin was a dialect used more from people from the scholar and government class, and Cantonese was more like a working class dialect too. So you know, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of aspects to that in addition to the colonialism. It wasn't just because the English decided this was it, but it was also like you know, um, we see from the interactions with Professor Lovell, he cares about class and civilization and stuff like that. If you're going to learn Chinese, you're going to learn the most civilized version of that. Yeah, sophisticated yeah. version of the language. I think it's really funny because English was considered a commoner's language. Um, <laughs> like in, in, in British court, French was used because that was like the high court language. And it's just funny to me now that English is considered the quote-unquote standard yeah. well, I mean, the, that was the until, common tongue of the world. That was until the empire of France fell, right? And England became the number one empire in the world. Yeah, I mean, this this idea of um, the decline of empires and how power is um, transferred to another nation after, um, after war, after trade imbalance, it's repeated throughout the book. Yeah, um, I have a question. Um, how did yeah, you sure. did, did you read the book or did you listen to audiobook? I read and listened to the audiobook. So the audiobook narrators are Chris Liu Kum Hoi, Chris Liu Kum Hoi, and uh, Billy Fulford Brown. And Chris is pretty much the main narrator, whereas uh, Billy is like the footnotes narrator right the foot- and we chris talk did an amazing job chris <clears throat> did an amazing job with the accents because there are a series like a myriad of accents the characters speak in this book yeah i also listened to the audiobook and usually i just pick one or the other but like when i was reading the book without the audiobook i was like i need the voices i need the accents to like really complete the experience because the the narrator takes on like all the accents like for the housekeeper he puts on a scottish accent for um victoire who we meet later he puts on a french accent and it just it just you know made the whole experience much more i guess filling yeah and as someone who is not chinese like whenever i saw like chinese characters i was like i don't know how to read that i have no <laughs> idea how, how that is pronounced so it was really nice to actually have an auditory guide and um I found all of the footnotes to be really, really amusing. Yeah, um, I didn't expect, I knew there would be footnotes, but I didn't expect the footnotes to also fill in like the world building and the narrative as well. I just thought it'd just, it'd just be like asides, like factual asides. Yeah, and you know, a lot of a lot of the footnotes is based on real historical facts. However, um, some of them... Rebecca took liberties and uh, fictionalized them in a really funny way. So um, I really enjoyed reading all the footnotes. I know for some people, they were annoyed by it because they were like, oh, these could have been their own chapters rather than have them like interrupt um, every so often. However, I feel like it would have been really hard 
to keep track of all of the microaggressions and, and just kind of like the history of racism at Babel. If like those footnotes weren't there, yeah, like right then and was, there. Yeah, I thought it was a really clever way to insert like secondary storytelling and asides without breaking up the narrative. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, like one of my favorite ones was uh, the aside about Charles Dickens being a racist writer who <laughs> like Ro- Robin loves uh, Charles Dickens' writing, but he noticed that he really hates anyone who is not white. And yeah. there's a bunch of anecdotes about um, very famous uh, white authors who are <laughs> pretty much racist. And he's like, okay, I know that they're racist and their logic is flawed and biased. However, they write really good stuff. Yeah, I mean, Rebecca definitely did not hold back in her criticisms of the classics and the viewpoints of those authors. Uh, But going back to the story, so at the ship harbor right before Robin is to set sail sail for London, uh, he is forced to translate for a Chinese sailor who has been denied work because um, the crewmate, the, the crew member is like, I don't want any Chinese people on board. Uh, what were your thoughts on Robin's, uh, I guess, like decision in that situation? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is one of many compromises that he makes, right? Like, it's I his think- first. Uh, it's his first foray into. Oh, okay. Like, in order for me to survive. I need to betray my countrymen. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's a theme that's ongoing, right? Like his conflict within himself, like to do what's necessary to maintain his position and keep his comforts versus what he feels in his heart is right. And for at least the foremost of these first two books, the the drive for self-preservation wins out. Um, You know, time and time again, he's shown that he's willing to stand up for what he believes in to a certain extent. But if it gets too dangerous, too risky, he balks. And that's very apparent in this first um, incident where he knows what he can do for this person. And he knows what is right. But he also fears that in doing the right thing, he'll lose whatever it is he might gain. And so he decides to feign ignorance. Yeah, and pretty much like he is fearing that, oh, if I'm causing too much trouble, the professor is going to think that I'm not worth the trouble. That I am not the model minority that he believes Not I the am. model minority. Yes, that is a recurring theme throughout this book. Uh, but Robin uh, continues on to London, and then he arrives at Hampstead, which is uh, where Professor Lovell lives. And there he studies Latin, Greek, and Mandarin in, pre- in preparation for his enrollment into the Royal Institute of Translation. Wow. Um, like, the, the, the rigorousness of his studies was... Um, <laughs> reminiscent let's say of of some of my studies growing up (laughs) yeah i mean professor lovell is obviously a man of great standing and sophistication and he demands a lot out of his ward and in order to deserve to be his ward he needs to always put in 110 percent anything less as is um 
as we find out. Ungratefulness. Not only ungratefulness, but him allowing his base Chinese characteristics to take over, including like laziness and sloth. And we see that most apparent during one of the episodes in this chapter where um, Robin is late to a class because he was busy reading a book, which, you know, same, I've been there. But instead of you know, getting a scolding, Professor Lovell goes full mask off, goes full racism mode and beats him down. Yeah, and he's continuously saying, if, like, I only asked for one thing from you, which is you to put in 110% into your studies. And, you know, if you're not willing to uh, meet my standard, that I can always send you back to Canton. And, um, and you'll just die in insignificant orphan on the streets without any prospects. And I don't know, it's, it kind of reminded me of, I don't know, like, I, I, I guess Robin is, Robin is an adoptee in a sense. And it just reminded me of what a lot of adoptees in my circles have said of, of just like feeling like they have to, they have to feel uh, grateful, right? They have to feel... They have to feel grateful, yeah. And it's like, oh, they were quote-unquote rescued. And uh, they're being awarded all of these privileges and higher education because they were adopted. So they should feel grateful to their adoptive parents. Yeah, I mean, this chapter is when we kind of get a sense of what P- Professor Lovell's politics are, right? Um, we get glimpses of his meetings with his, you know, his smoking buddies or his like his gentleman friends and they're all talking about how to how they can further exploit the colonies right how they can further um, improve the, the might of the empire through essentially capitalism right like they're they're all dyed in the wool capitalists and this is where we get a first glimpse or first hint that robin is uh related to professor level because one of the gentlemen in that scene, he says, oh, my God, he looks just like you. And it was weird because in the beginning of the book, I had no inclination. Like, I had no idea that Robin was biracial. Um, I kind of suspected. They did mention here and there about how he doesn't look full Chinese, right? I think there were hints here and there, but I just, like, it didn't register to me until that scene where I was like, oh okay, he is a mixed race and it kind of makes sense where like Professor Lovell and uh, Robin's education in Canton came to place with the white governess and all of these books that are very precious and expensive to ship. So I was like, okay, things are falling into place. Um, And then I guess we can move on now to when Robin goes to Oxford, right? Yeah, Robin, yeah, Robin finally gets enrolled into Babel, um, and he meets his roommate, uh, Rami, who is originally from Calcutta. I love this part because it reminds me of, like, any time I find myself in a very white space, I beeline to the closest person of color I see. Um, and it's it's such a... if. If you've ever been in this situation, you know exactly what that feeling is, like kind of feeling that sense of relief that there's someone there that is also other, right? Yeah. And this is Robin's first time realizing he isn't the only one who's experienced being 
displaced from his homeland and uh, being raised by a white man and um, and like being expected to be fluent in all of these languages in order to get into Oxford. He realizes that Rami yeah. also went through he that He realizes experience. that many children have been groomed for this express purpose of becoming a translator for uh, for the for the crown, essentially. Yeah, and that's pretty much why uh, Babel exists. And yeah. it is it is quite uh, surprising, just like how insidious that is, <laughs> like how insidious it gets when it term when it comes to uh, exploiting uh, these children who were plucked away from their homes. I mean, one of the big themes that emerged from the book is just how closely academia is tied to the activity of empire, right? How, I mean, even look at today, like a lot of, you know, research and technology done in universities, a lot of them get their money and get their funding and get their applications done through the military, through military applications, through government applications, um, before they even become like medicine or anything else. Or like, you know, the internet started as a military project, right? Uh, I, actually don't know if it started out as, as Arpa, a military Arpa, yeah. Oh, it did. Okay. Well, learn something new every single day. Um, <laughs> I knew that GPS was like a military uh, technology until it got opened up to, to public domain. Um, but anyway, uh, but later on, there's a scene where uh, Rami and Robin, they're harassed by drunk Oxford students who are pretty much demanding Rami to take off his uniform because uh, they're like, what are you doing? You're not white. You have brown skin. You don't belong here. And that that is like their first instance, first experience of uh, racism at not, their school. I mean, first close encounter with racist violence i mean they've been microaggressed the entire like two or three weeks they were there right there are people who won't serve them people who think they're dirty people won't seat them um i mean but this was the first time they felt like they were in physical danger yeah and it was also robin's first time uh realizing that he has privilege of you know not being dark skin he could blend in when uh, whereas like Rami cannot and that's a different level of um, harassment that he experiences compared to Rami and anyway like Robin runs away from the encounter and Rami is forced to follow him even though Rami was ready to fight off all of these uh, drunk racist Oxford students and this is another instance of us realizing that Robin yeah, he's willing to stand up for for what he thinks is right, but only to a certain extent, he as long as he hurt, doesn't get hurt. But he is willing to put himself at risk to um, retrieve Rami's notebook that he left at the bar um, because he knows that he has that light skin privilege. And this is where he first meets um, a group of thieves that have been stealing silver from Babel. And um, what did you think when... Robin just went up and helped these people get away with their their theft. Um, I thought it was uncharacteristically brave in the moment, but um, but it also like showed me like okay, like Robin is willing 
like he does see right and wrong. He is willing to act on his conscience, especially after the experience of, you know, bailing on Rami. So I was like, okay, yeah, he is willing to, you know, put his neck on the line to a certain extent, like well, we keep saying. Well, I mean, remember what the catalyst was for his emotional impulse to help them was seeing a face that looked just like his own. Was that before he he helped them? Or oh, actually, yeah, you're right. Okay, so like what happens is like he hears Chinese uh, being spoken and he was like, what is, what is that noise? Like, where is that coming from? And that's how he discovers the Thebes. Yeah. And um, the one of the thieves is trying to activate the stolen silver bar by speaking in uh, Mandarin, but it's not working. So that's how Robin steps in to help because he knows that he is the only person who can provide help in in that uh, in that aspect. There's yeah. no other Chinese person around, so he's like, "Okay, well, it's on me." Yeah, and so I thought it was super interesting that emotionally he still wants to help his people and that's what drives him right he still subconsciously i think has that line between us and them because that line is something that the world never lets him forgive like the whole what i found really interesting about like book two and their like experience in oxford is even though babel welcomes them as you know scholars you start to realize that they're really more just resources and they will never be seen as one of them, right? There's like this, there's always this line that they can ignore, but they can never escape from. And I think that's, at least from my reading, that's kind of the subconscious. Like once he sees that there's someone that looks like him that's trying to do this thing, that is obviously like a crime against the organization that he belongs to. His first instinct is to help the person that he sees as his own people. Um, yeah. So like it's it's a really clever way for Rebecca to like start laying the groundwork for like when push comes to shove, Robin will probably make the right decision if his brain doesn't get in the way first. Yeah, it, like you realize like okay, yeah, there's some work to be done on his character growth. <laughs> um, but we move on to the orientation day of Babel, and Robin meets his two other uh, schoolmates. Victoire, who is born in Haiti and raised in France, and Letty, who is a white girl and a daughter of a powerful admiral and who was born and raised in Britain. And this is when we realize, oh, okay, women are being snuck into Oxford. (laughs) (laughs) Because Oxford is known to be a male-only college, but they're like, okay, yeah, what did you think of all the patriarchy at play here? Like the fact that Letty and Victoria have have to live off campus um, and that they aren't allowed to do things like go to a bookstore or go to a museum on their own. It was expected because it's the 1830s. And I thought it was a really clever way to once again show the hypocrisy of um the institution being like, okay, like we'll use you as a resource, but we won't treat you as if uh, you're one of our own. You belong here to a certain extent, but only until you're useless. Yeah, it's it's just another example of an allegory for the British Empire, right? Like, or colonialism in general is just we want your stuff, we want your resources, we want the things you can provide, but we don't necessarily want the people. We'll deal with it 
as much as we have to, but like we're really here for the goods. Yeah, and you realize that Babel is very different from the rest of Oxford, not in just, you know, letting in uh, students of marginalized backgrounds, of color, um, students who are women, but also Babel gets a lot of funding. They, you know, are able to give stipends to all of their students, and they're really, they have a lot of privileges. They can really go in any building and demand um whatever resources they need and they would be given it. So you 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 see that Babel is like the pinnacle of privilege. Like it is the best place for people of color to be because it is the only place that they're allowed to actually uh be uh, to be valued, actually like right? you yeah be valued. Yeah. I so <laughs> we sh- we probably should have talked about this at the beginning but is it Babel or Babel? Because the audiobook is Babel. I think it's Babel, both. But we've used but, both <laughs> throughout this podcast. Well, like I, I, in the narrator uses Babel in terms of uh, calling it the school. And then they're called babblers colloquially by the rest of Oxford. Um, I like, I personally call it Babel. Because uh, I just think about the Tower of Babel and Babylon. So that's just where my mind goes. <laughs> but I think they're both correct. I mean, okay. accents are accents. I'm just, you know, noticing that you switched to Babel just now. <laughs> to Babel, to Babel. Listen, okay, like, I, I have a very bad habit of uh, picking up pronunciations from other um, from other accents. It's it's bad. <laughs> it's okay. I wish I could read in like accents. Like that's part of the reason why I switched back to the audiobook or read along with the audiobook is because I, I wanna hear the Irish brogue. I wanna hear that um that that French accent from Victoire. Oh, it was like re- it was really I don't know if it was uh jarring for you, but their orientation is led by a a, a graduate student named Anthony, and he is a black student from the West Indies. And as I was listening to the audiobook, he speaks in an American accent. And it was just like so jarring because I was like, wait, like <laughs> I've been listening to a British narrator this entire time. And you know how like we always say, oh, I don't have an accent. Like, but that's not true. Everybody speaks with an accent. And I was like, wow, American accents. It, <laughs> it really it really sticks out like a sore thumb among uh British uh British speaking characters. No, so we can't like, let okay. the British center themselves. They've centered themselves for centuries. Let's you know, we're we're we are the empire now. <laughs> yes. Um what did imperialist you think of- power gets <laughs> gets transferred throughout history. But anyway, go go on. What did you think of uh the cohort? Like Victoire and um, Letty. I was side-eyeing Letty the entire time. She was, was kind of like, a basic, oh, like, right? you're one of those people. Oh, you're like the token white girl. Well, <laughs> quote-unquote token, but I like mean, she, meaning, meaning like she's the white girl who is going to be the one not understanding all of the microaggressions. And either she's going to 
either she's going to like learn a lot and try to fix her behavior and uh, be more open minded and understand how uh, the empire works by oppressing their colonies and just like how harmful that kind of thinking is or she is going to side with the empire and i was like i don't know she kind of seems like she's gonna side with the white people when it comes down to it so you know did not like her from the (laughs) get-go i mean she definitely is the type of person who says well they don't want to get in trouble they shouldn't do crimes yeah she's definitely the whole like hashtag all lives matter (laughs) speaking of okay speaking of that okay like one of the i read a couple of reviews for this book and the the reviews that are like one two star like i can't help but notice that they're all by white readers <laughs> and some of them were saying how it could be racist towards white people uh cuz not all white people are that oblivious and uh they're not as stupid when it comes to colonialism and i was like huh so what who is this book written for like, I mean, it made me really question that. No, there's going to be those types of people. I mean, there's there's there was someone who was upset that this book turned dark. And it's like, have you read a RF Kong book? That's kind of her thing. I mean, pro- they probably have not. But also, have they read Dark Academia before? <laughs> Usually something bad happens. Usually something horrible happens. And it's supposed to question. Yeah. Uh, whether, you know, the knowledge or magic in that book is, you know, can be used in a bad way. Yeah. And I mean, there's no one like overtly evil in the book. Um, there's a lot of people I don't know. Who... Professor Lovell is pretty <laughs> overtly evil, in my opinion, but go on. I mean, everyone thinks they're like right, in the right, right? Um, and, you know, it's not like, Letty is like saying things out of malice. Malice. It's all ignorance. And I feel like that's kind of something that the story does a good job of portraying. It's like kind of the the insidious and mundane ways that imperial thought creeps into people, right? The idea that we are civilized, therefore we are better than you. you know, just the air of superiority that you get from a self-proclaimed status right like the whole idea of what nobility comes from right like we have money which means that god loves us or we have money (laughs) which means that it's a reward for us being better people than the commoners right like that's kind of those ideas are so ingrained in that society yeah i mean like professor lovell and the other uh staff at babel their stance on why britain deserves to keep all its silver is because all of the other colonies had opportunities to build their own translation centers <laughs> and they had all of like all the time and all the opportunity to you know match britain in their silver working prowess and they were just too lazy to or you know they didn't value knowledge or translation enough they didn't work hard enough to get to where britain is and it's like but don't they realize that britain is you know they pretty much stole the resources from the colonies and therefore they can't there's no way that the colonies can catch up yeah through the end of a gun right through their naval might it's hard to develop internally when 
all of your wealth is being sent to a far off island to be used in like mundane ways, right? Like most of the silver in Britain is being used to like warm coffee mugs and, you know, make machines run quieter. Yeah. I mean, the beginning of book two begins with Robin meeting his half-brother Griffin at the Twisted Root. He finds out that Griffin is a drop-down Babel student and now works for the Ermi Society, which we've mentioned earlier is a ragtag group that is dedicated to redistributing silver to the colonies and yeah, uh, helping say, them fight back. I don't know if they're ragtag. They seem pretty organized. At least organized I don't enough know. to it, like be like a whole organized decentralized. Enough, organized enough to I don't provide... Know. Aid to international resistance movements. I think that's pretty organized. Uh, I guess. I, I feel like because Griffin is like our first Ermi's uh, contact, I guess, it just seems kind of messy in my opinion. I'm like, you guys could probably be more organized, but uh, it's understandable because uh, Babel, we find out, has a ward system. Like it has, it has like magic that... Uh, prevents people from breaking in or at least leaving yeah. the tower with with goods. I mean, silver silver in this world is used much in the same way that steam is used in a lot of steampunk uh, settings, where it's kind of like a stand-in for industrial revolution, uh, but much more sophisticated than like the the machines of that era. So we get like things that are kind of more anachronistic, like silver. Uh, power security systems that mans like automated turrets, which is something that I, I didn't really expect from um, a story taking place in the 1830s. Yeah, I figured because you have literal magic in this book that some technological advances are going to be uh, much further on than the Victorian era of, of steam and industri- industrial um, machines yeah. that were built during that time. Uh, But this is when Robin works undercover, and his job is to open the Babel doors to the Ermes members. He never sees their faces. It's always at the cover of night, and this is the only risk he is willing to make. (laughs) Yeah, um, he helps them with their heists because um, there is a biometric lock to the doors of Babel, so only he... Um, so only enrolled staff and students can enter the tower at any time or also trigger the magical automated turrets. And yeah, so he he moonlights as the um, the inside man for the Silver Thebes for most of book two while attending classes. And, you know, what did you think of all like the classroom scenes? Because we get a lot of them during this book, like lectures about entomology about this is when we get our exposition dump about the science of silver working right yeah i loved all of that yeah i really like i really like these parts too i was like you know i i kept rewinding the audiobook to go back because i needed to like refresh on all the lectures just to like make sure i got everything i felt like i was back in school yeah it was definitely i definitely felt like i was back in school (laughs) Um, I did take a class on linguistics back in college, and it reminded me so much of the lectures there. And, you know, like the thing I love about dark academia is that, uh, like, being nerdy is considered a superpower <laughs> in a way. 
And I just love the fact that the only way to make silver working work is for uh, Babel students to read a lot. Like, yeah. it's not just enough to be uh, fluent in a language. You need to know, like, where uh, the terms come from, how they relate to other languages, the history of how language is affected by other cultures. And I was like, wow, this is so nerdy. I love this. Yeah. This is something that I would definitely have loved as um as a kid who thought herself as like a very brainy uh <laughs> nerd. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, like we mentioned, the magic from silver working comes from capturing the power of what's lost in translation when you translate words to English. And you know, it's really funny that we were reading this book after our chat with Anton Hur, the um translator of um, I Wanna Die by I Wanna Eat Duck Bookie. Because um, I feel like that conversation kind of primed me for these concepts, right? The fact that there is no one-to-one between between any language, right? Like even between Latin languages, certain words, certain sayings mean different things, have different connotations. And, you know, what is the role of the translator is to, to translate the author's meaning as closely as possible to the original intent or to translate it in spirit so the reader can understand the author's original meaning. And, you know, this is where we get that, like, I think this is a quote that is often attributed to this book, which is like, translation is an act of violence toward the original. Yeah, I have the actual quote right here. Uh, Translation means doing violence upon the original, means warping and distorting it for foreign unintended eyes. So then where does that leave us? How can we conclude except by acknowledging that an act of translation is then necessarily always an act of betrayal? Yeah, which I think... It's just such a powerful passage that really illustrates like the insidiousness of Babel as an institution. Like their job is to do violence to other cultures. Yeah, it's to use their language and use it as a weapon against uh, their colonies. Um, A great example of this is during their third year, during their junior year, like the year where it's like crunch time for them. Um, And they get their own advisors for like their dissertations, kind of. Uh, Victoire, she wants to have her dissertation on Haiti Creole. But her professor, her uh, advisor says, well, like, no one really cares about that language. So like, use use actual French. And but at the same time, he's always like, well, maybe you can write about voodoo culture and she's just like well that that's not something that is meant for people who are not from haiti like it's it's religion it is sacred to my people so it's not something that i'm willing to just make it accessible to to english readers and letty has a moment where she is very ignorant and says well why do you care you're french you're civilized. <laughs> You're not religious. And I was just, oh, I was like, oh my God. <clears throat> yeah, Wrong thing not to a, say. Not a good moment for Letty in our eyes. Uh, one of many Letty moments um, throughout the but book But I feel like so it's far. a moment that that all of us who are of um, racial minority can like we've experienced this before. Oh, me, me, where someone you mean, says like, why like, do you... Oh, you're one of the good ones? That or just saying like, you're American. 
why do you care about what's happening in China or Korea or like whatever home country? Yeah. And when it comes down to it, it's like, who, like, where does your loyalty lie? And it's like so <laughs> stupid. Yeah. Their um, third year apprenticeship is also, isn't this where we learn the real reason why people like Rami and Robin are so valued? And it's because they're fluent in a language that is of a different, like... Not romantic, not yeah. uh, Latin. It's untapped resource, <laughs> untapped right. material. Because we learned that the powers of silver bars that use Latin or romantic languages as like their base are losing their power because of the growing power of English. I, th- I thought it was really cool how they explained that the power of language is always shifting. And as the power of the British Empire grows... So does the power of English, which means the difference or the the gap of language and what's lost in translation is getting smaller and smaller because, you know, as English starts taking words and sayings and phrases from, from their empire, from their neighbors, it starts becoming part of their own language. And so it stops being something that needs to be translated. Yeah, I mean, language, languages affect each other. And, you know, we see that across history, which is mentioned in this book. Uh, I mean, there was, like, there was the Roman Empire. And then after they declined, there, was the, there were the Spanish. And then there were the Habsburg, which were pretty much like the first global uh, empire that's able to uh, really take silver working to another level. And then you have the French. And then after Napoleon is defeated, the English comes into play. So languages are shifting constantly from Latin to Spanish to German to French to English. So obviously all of these languages are being affected and kind of like growing into a melting pot. And English is kind of like the bastardization of (laughs) all European languages, in, in my opinion, because there's just so many loan words. And really, English doesn't make any sense because it borrows so many uh like so many root words from other countries and other cultures so i thought that was a pretty fascinating way to uh dive into that commentary <laughs> of how languages affect each other yeah and how empire works yeah and this is about the time when we learn about how babel and by extension the british empire is running low on silver reserves uh, because because of a trade imbalance with China, you know, China, there's a huge demand for Chinese goods such as like furniture and porcelain tea. and tea. And the Chinese empire, they don't care about British products. Like they don't find any beauty or they don't find any value in that, but they do find value in silver. So a lot of silver is being sent to China in return for Chinese goods. And historically, this is something that really happened, um, the trade imbalance, because this is pretty much what leads to the opium wars, which um, I think is pretty much on the horizon in this story. We'll probably in this see book, it. Yeah. yeah. Um, because, um, you know, the opium wars is basically in order to fix that trade imbalance, the British forces China to allow them to sell opium to their citizens. Um, and when China says no, they start a war over it. Like, I think, I don't know how many people realize that the opium war, like the reason why Hong Kong became a British territory is all because 
England wanted to sell drugs to China in order to solve its trade imbalance. Yeah, they wanted to sell drugs to China so that they could be addicted and buy more drugs and spend more money and uh, tip the trade balance yeah, back in their They want favor. to make that money back by selling drugs. And, you know, the, the, the irony is those drugs are coming from, like, India, right? They're coming from other colonies. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, oh, the irony. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's rumblings on that now uh, on the horizon. For those of us who know history, we're like, uh-oh, I know what that is. Yeah, and Griffin warns Robin later on that it gets really hard to stay in Babel as a student because of ethics, because you're going to be assigned to sell drugs to China. Or like <laughs> and- make weapons or enslave your own people, maybe. Yeah, use translation, even for it being an interpreter, like using translation as a way to swindle your motherland country. So um, Robin is just like, okay, but Babel is the only place that I belong. Oxford is this utopia where I get to purely pursue knowledge and you know, yeah, have all this luxury. Where he can be a good model minority. Yeah, it's like as long as you support the empire, <laughs> you're good. Your your education is funded. You're able to do whatever you want. You have your creature comforts. You just have to turn a blind eye at the very least. You have to be least. grateful for what we provided you and help us do violence to other people. Yeah, and later in, later in book two, you find out that Anthony... Uh, the black student from the West Indies who was there for orientation, he, quote unquote, dies. Mysteriously dies, which he definitely joined Hermes, right? Yeah, because, you know, <laughs> Griffin Griffin says like, oh, yeah, a lot of Babel students drop out because of ethic issues. And, you know, you just have to fake your death and hope that you don't get caught. I mean, he did a pretty terrible job in hiding it when Robin brought it up to him that a student named Anthony died. And he's like, oh, yeah, Anthony didn't know that guy. I mean, I knew that guy. <laughs> I knew that guy. Um, I think. But right, like I was just like, "There's no way, like <laughs> he's alive." I mean, is that the same conversation where you find out why um, Griffin was abandoned by their father? Yeah, it is. Uh, he, Robin finds out that Griffin is unable to dream in Chinese, and he failed his uh, third year exam, so he wasn't able to get into silver working. And rather than sticking around to do, like, translation for literature or legal, it's like his father was like, if you're not going to be doing silver working, what value are you to me and this empire? It's such a interesting, I guess, illustration of the act of being someone where English may not be your main language or may be your second language, right? Because... I learned Chinese from speaking with my parents growing up and I learned English from watching television. And so sometimes I do find myself still thinking in Chinese. And, you know, I've heard the same from my friends for whom English is a second language where they need to, they need a second to translate what they want to say from Chinese or from their language to English before speaking. Yeah. And, you know, I really related to Griffin who says like, oh, you don't know the pain of losing your native tongue and to not be able to dream in Chinese anymore. Um, I was born in, I was born in Seoul and I immigrated to the States when I was three. And 
you know, that fact has always kind of been used against me by other uh, Korean American parents who would be like, oh, you were born in Korea. So why isn't your Korean like super fluent? Like why, like, have you retained, why haven't you retained uh, your, like your Korean vocabulary? And I'm just like, well, when you, when you grow up here, <laughs> like it's so easy for the language to slip away because you're not using it. And I had the disadvantage of having to use English in my household. So I didn't really get that extra practice of, um, of using Korean with my parents. Now I'm, it's like a mix of Konglish and my mom gets very frustrated because she's just like, why are you unable to just have a pure conversation with me in Korean? Uh, and I'm just like, because that's how I was raised <laughs> and you can't just expect me to like be perfectly bilingual when uh, that was just like not the experience that I had. Um, but yeah, a lot of people have, a lot of Asian Americans have that same experience as, as Griffin where you came to your adopted country, like at a weird age where um, like your native tongue gets kicked out and <laughs> kicked out of your brain, like one takes over the other. And it's really interesting because what is it? My, my cousin and her, um, her sons, they came to America um, to like stay briefly because she wanted her kids to be exposed to the English language and to the culture. And it was just fascinating because her youngest son was three years old. And, you know, all he did was talk in Korean. Like he, he had a really hard time picking up English. And then all of a sudden, one day, he only spoke in English. Like he could not go back into Korean. And it was just shocking because he, it was just like his mind got wiped <laughs> and everything got rewired into English. And it just like made me wonder, it's like, huh, is that what I went through <laughs> as, as a kid? Is that what my parents experienced when I suddenly switched from native tongue to English? I mean, I'm sure there's also social pressures and, you know, things that kids go through. I'm sure for Griffin, having a racist father who is a white supremacist didn't help in his like language skills as well, right? Yeah, and of course, like English is used as you know the currency of the rich. So <laughs> if you go to like East Asia, if you're able to speak English, or if you studied abroad, you're considered upper class, and you're considered quote unquote superior to uh, to other Asians <laughs> in, mean, in that country. I mean, that's just the scars of imperialism on all of our cultures, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> um, but after this is when. Um, Robin gets shot, right? This is when he gets shot, like on the job. Yeah, he yeah he's on a routine routine job, and the wards got changed because uh, there have just been more robberies, but not done by the Hermes Society. They've been no wait. So Professor Playfair, the um, their main professor, I guess, is he's such an interesting guy because he seems like a affable, jolly dude. But man, he really loves making his death traps. Yeah, he's very sinister. Um, and it seems like, I think, the first person that got shot um, in that chapter, I think it was a professor, and the wards just malfunctioned, right? Um, I don't think the wards uh, malfunctioned. I think what happened was... Uh, 
so there were like a bunch of robberies that were being done by uh, protesters who were protesting silver oh, right. making this is when because the labor they're from the protest started. yeah because yeah. they're like mill workers or factory workers and they're saying that silver working has cost them their jobs because they're being replaced by machines um, being run by uh, silver. So there have been more robberies being attempted at the Babel Tower, but because they're not part of the Ermi Society, they don't know that there are wards protecting uh, the tower. So uh, after a couple of thieves get getting arrested, Professor Playfair is like, okay, I'm going to update the wards so that... Um, you know, it, it will it will help us with like the robberies. I think being... he updated it so that the wards can sense intent now, which Yeah, sense intent. Because before it was like bullshit right there. Well, like before it was like it was like, okay, like as long as you have um as long as you're like bio authenticated by the tower, you're able to open the door, get in and out, whatever. Uh but what happens is uh Robin gets shot accidentally because he steps into like the the doorway of the tower and outside. I th- I think that's what what happens. Like he missteps and then he gets shot because the tower knows that he's not there for a good reason. He's there to help thieves steal silver. And that's a turning point for him because he's like, oh, snap, I I've been hurt. got physically hurt. <laughs> and, you know, now that he's been hurt, it is now the danger is now real to him. And now he wants out. Um, and then <laughs> it takes a couple chapters for him to actually quit because Griffin, like all high scum bad, um, needs to lay low for a while. But during that time, he's just like stewing about it. Yeah. And also, you know, he's. There's the stress of exams and, you know, he's just like, I have so much to lose if I am kicked out of school. And um, he just thinks that it's not worth it. Right. Wasn't this when we're shown the um, the public humiliation of like what happens if you don't make it past your third year? Yeah. Yeah. Which reminds it me a lot of like, like, you know, how, like, from like fraternities. Yeah. Like a lot of like old institutions they love their rituals right they, they love their 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 cloak and dagger skull and bones like all that stuff and just reminds me of like it's basically the institution flexing its power uh, for for no reason then to just like power trip really yeah and to warn other students like hey this could happen to you so like take your studies seriously <laughs> if you're not of use to us you're easily replaceable and it works. It works on Robin. He's like, oh no, I need to. I need to be a good. I think it would work boy. on anyone. <laughs> I mean, it is a traumatic. Like it's traumatizing. And so we end book two with Robin informing Griffin that he's out. He can't yeah. do this anymore. Um, Justifying to himself that he wouldn't be able to make a difference anyways. Yeah, and also Griffin comes up with a a riskier assignment for. Robin, he's like, hey, so there's these shipment of silver that's coming. Uh, kind of need you to plant a bomb of some sorts. I think that was what happened. Um, <laughs> but Robin is just like, no, that is, I already got shot from just opening a door. There's no way I'm going to stick my neck out for a riskier operation like this. And that's where book two ends. Yeah. So, yeah, like uh, predictions for book 
three, four, five, Marvin. I mean, he gets pulled back eventually, right? This is called Babel or the necessity of violence. So I imagine, obviously, the opium war will play a big part in his like radicalization, right? Because as we know, Robin is a wuss, but if things affect him personally, he has been known to make emotional decisions. And it's going to be hard to justify playing a role on the side of empire during the opium wars. Yeah, I mean, my... I mean, with like the Tower of Babel in terms of like biblical um, biblical references, I mean, the Tower of Babel falls it collapses such hubris to name their institution after a known disaster in the bible right i mean their official name is called the royal institute of translation people just call it babel colloquially because it's a literal tower (laughs) and there's a bunch of people who can speak multiple languages and also the hubris yes yes um I don't know if the institution will collapse. That's just me being very cynical. Um, but I do believe that there will be a good attempt. I can and see it, it. This is an R of Quan book. She loves to tear down her worlds and in the process make all of her characters suffer, which I am I mean there's it's actually been pretty light on suffering for these first two books. So I'm, I'm expecting a lot of pain to come as we get into the um the next parts. Yeah, I mean, it's called the arcane history of the Oxford Translators Revolution. So I'm guessing that the translators are going to band together at one point to overthrow uh, the institution. However, I feel like the empire is too strong and they're still going to be left standing at the end of this book. But I feel like they're going to make a good attempt and there are going to be reforms from uh I guess their uh, re- revolution. So I think it all burns down. I mean, that no would reform. be nice. That would just that would be <laughs> that would be good fantasy. But I'm I'm just thinking of like historical context. The British Empire does not. Uh, but this is an AU collapse so, until later. You know, we can't. Yes, we but can't it's an use... AU based on a lot of real history. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm really curious as to what levels of violence I will see in book three, four, and five. Because, um, yeah, like we said, the Opium War is is on the horizon. So I can only assume that there's going to be some body count towards the end of the book. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to finishing this book. It, it was really hard to to put down. At the at the appointed time, um, I was just really enjoying all the characters, and you know, um, we didn't um, dwell a lot of time on it. But the relationship between the cohort, specifically between um, Rami and Robin, was, was just so fun to to read. Um, they're in each other, right? Yeah, they're they're totally gay. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're totally gay, and you know, I just love the fact that like Rami is so outspoken about how terrible the empire is and he's like he's always bickering with letty and robin is robin is just like i just want peace like (laughs) can't we just all get along and the dynamics with all of the with the four characters it's very it's very funny to watch and i think it's really endearing as well it really brought back like memories of like my school days where that was all i had to worry about like i didn't have to worry about like 
real world problems. <laughs> I just had to worry about like passing my exams and whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a feeling that Rami's the type of person. I feel like Robin should have just told Rami what was going on because Rami would be like, revolution, I'm in because he has. Oh, yeah, no 100 <laughs> percent. But also like Robin, you know, he's a good friend. He doesn't want to endanger his buddies. And he knows that Rami, because he is a brown guy, he's not going to get the leniency <laughs> that uh, Robin would get, especially since Professor Lovell is his dad. Yeah, Robin is a nepple baby, right? Yeah, I mean, he didn't have to take a, a take an entrance exam. <laughs> oh, this is something that we didn't talk about. But like, uh, so there are people in their dorm who are from uh, different colleges and they don't get like extra funding. They have to pay an absorbent amount of tuition. And it's just like the... The way that some of those students are like, oh, it must be nice that, you know, you're able to just go to Babel without paying a single cent. Wow, you're like living the life. <laughs> and and I was just like, wow, that's kind of like how, you know, um, a lot of a lot of people complain that like minorities have it easy for college applications because just because they're a minority they're able to get in easier but there was also that scene where robin gets invited to the rich boy party and the rich boys try to impress him with their poetry and he's oh my like, god that was my favorite scene ever it was so funny <laughs> and he was like these guys are all idiots why am i here <laughs> And, you know, like he he asked them, like, what are you going to do after graduation? And they're like, oh, what am I going to do? Doing is for peasants. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, OK, um, nothing has changed because I definitely have met those types <laughs> of people at my school and other workplaces. So, yeah. Another one of my favorite parts was that aside when I think it was in the second year when he decides to join the rowing team. And I thought it was, I got a kick out of it because it's such a sneaky way for Rebecca to make her character hot now. <laughs> I mean, I guess. Because he gets buff while doing rowing. And she's like, yeah, so Robin's hot now. And it's because he rows. I mean, he could have always been hot. We don't know what he looks like. Well, I mean, he was scrawny, right? And then he becomes like a rower. He was scrawny because, like, he was scrawny as a kid. <laughs> Everyone goes through, like, a growth spurt. I don't know. Not to say that, like, there's only one way to be hot. You know, you don't have to be freaking muscular uh, to be considered hot. But uh, rowing, is such a, <laughs> rowing is such a British sport that <laughs> I was just like, wow, we really are in England. Like, someone, like, is Rami going to play cricket? <laughs> like, I, was <laughs> I mean, the girls joined the fencing team, right? Because then they could be on the oh, masks. Yeah. That was fun too. Yeah, that was fun too. Yeah, I mean, I think we're coming out of the fun school times arc and entering the um, impending war arc. And I am very excited to see where this goes because Robin as a hero isn't there yet. You know, he has, he knows what the right thing is, but he doesn't have the courage to do it right. Like in terms of like his hero's journey, he has now rejected his call. You know, a long yeah. time to get to that first step. But so my prediction is that Rami and Victoire are definitely going to be part of the Ermi society because as dark skinned people, they have so much to lose as people who are benefiting from um, 
their privileges, but also they kind of receive receive the worst treatment ever. <laughs> well, they're also already having anti-imperial sentiments. So it, it makes sense for them to be sympathizers at the very least, right? Yeah. And it, you know, they have more of a reason to support their um mother motherland. So I mean, like for example, like Anthony, we find out that, you know, he was a slave and Babel bought his freedom quote-unquote, bought his freedom in order for him to become a student at Babel. All of the discussion of stuff like abolition and, like, oh, now we have to, like, pay for... It's such, like, she captures really well what they probably were all talking about in those inner circles at that time. Yeah. Like, we see with Anthony, like, he was, you know, even though he was a Babel student, you know, there was a lot that he could have been fighting for. And I see the same case with Victoire, who is from Haiti. And there's just a lot of um, oppression that's happening there. So I can see her being like, fuck Babel. I'm I'm going to drop out and join the revolution. So I can see her doing that. And obviously, Rami, he's always been outspoken about uh, the empire being oppressive against yeah. uh, oppressive on its colony so i can see him joining and, and know, then robin because he's kind of like he kind of has like his foot half like like one foot in the door one foot out the door in terms of revolution i'm sure one of the two are going to kind of pull him into the direction of revolution well i mean like we like we mentioned right like with rami and victoire specifically they they are othered just by virtue of just how they look, right? Their standing in society is just much more um, precarious. precarious. And they experience like overt racism way more than Robin does. I mean, Robin himself notes that he doesn't experience like the full brunt of the racism that like Rami does when they go out. So I think, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think the chance of them being radicalized is way higher because in a sense, they're already radicalized, right? Like you can't exist as like minorities, like, of a colonized people without always being aware of that fact. Yeah. And it's something that we see in our society today, like Asian people, we, a lot of Asian people align with white uh, supremacism because um, the level of oppression that we feel it's, it's different from, um, from the oppression that black people and brown people feel in this country. So yeah, like it, I think Rebecca did a really good job, like making these four characters <laughs> schoolmates, and um, it just like gives them a dynamic that really makes you question, like, okay, like the insidiousness of Babel and uh, the Empire, and they all have different experiences. And I just thought she did a good job with her cast. Yeah, definitely a lot of viewpoints to give us a lot of different perspectives. And just a really solid um, portrayal of the, um, like you said, the insidiousness of empire. Empire disguised through academia, through the pursuit of knowledge, through the accumulation of knowledge as a resource. It's It really makes you think about like the nature of empire and what empire needs to do to sustain itself and why, and why empires are ultimately unsustainable because you can't keep treating people like resources yeah and of course like we've mentioned this before but i the level of research that rebecca (laughs) went through to like get the etymology and like all of the linguistics 
uh, like super detailed in this book. I really appreciated it. And I feel like, you know, I, I feel like I should learn a language. Like I really <laughs> should put in the effort, <laughs> maybe go back and brush up on my Korean and actually be a bilingual person. Yeah. Inspiration. Also made me really, also made me really hungry for scones because British high tea, like tea time in tea time in England, it's so good. The one thing that they got right. But that tea comes from Asia. That tea comes from Asia. Their scones come from Scotland. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, I guess on that note, let's put a pin on our discussion of Babel. Um, we'll be back at the end of this month to finish the last three books of Babel. And, you know, and we'll see if our predictions come true or not. Will everything get burnt down or will the empire continue to reign? Um, I guess needless to say, our book club pick for this month is still Babel by R.F. Kuang. Um, so if you're reading along with us, uh, we will be discussing books three through five. Um, at the end of the month. Um, if you've already finished the book, please let us know your thoughts on our Guru's forums. As always, we love to include your feedback on our future podcast episodes. Um, we actually did get some feedback for um, this first half from one of our listeners. Um, Catherine um, writes, five stars from me. So creative. The idea of language being the building blocks for the world we live in is a cool premise. Kwong put so much into this book, but it didn't feel overwhelming to me. I like how she explored the relationship between Robin and the professor. The exploration of the white savior trope through Robin, Rami, and Victoire's experience is something I haven't seen that much in pop culture. At least the feeling of not having to feel grateful for being saved. Uh, of course, I have some things I didn't like, but I'll wait for the January thread. Um, as usual, the food descriptors were on point. Food talk in books is a bright spot for me. The way they would buy and share baked goods for each other was cute, just very college cute. Um, so yeah, definitely agreed with you on the food aspect of it. Um, I don't really have a love for tea time or British tea time, so um, I'm still trying. You don't like sandwiches? You don't like pastries? I just haven't experienced it that often um i do like a good tiny sandwich i guess um scones are fine you don't like clotted cream you don't like desserts pretty much what's a clotted cream oh my goodness all right well <laughs> i need to take you to uh, i need to take you to high tea time there's a couple of places in my town thankfully yeah so, let's yeah live we're out, gonna be doing that let's live out our imperial this. dreams by Sampling the wares of the empire. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> food is food. All right. Like, have you never been curious about it, Marvin? I mean, I know my mom likes. Have that you stuff. not watched the? Have you not? Okay, are you a sweet tooth person? I do like sweets, but I don't like. I like Asian sweets, which usually aren't as sweet as like European ones. You know. Okay, so. Uh, I mean, like, growing up, like, even when uh, I didn't go to places where they served uh, English tea, like, my friends and I would have tea parties. So we would prepare, like, our own, like, miniature sandwiches and scones and cookies and pie. It's it's a lot of fun. And, you know, it's, it's something that the British got right. I will tell them <laughs> that. And, you know, their tea time definitely influenced, you know, Asia. You see people in Singapore and Malaysia who still adopt uh, the tea time ways of the Brits. 
So I mean, it better be good. They went to war with us for it. So I know that's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But but tea time's good. Yeah, we should we should take you sometime. Yeah, we can do our we can we can have a books and boba tea time meeting. I guess. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, Rira, as always, thanks for joining me as we talk about um, Asian Asian American books. Um, looking forward to another year of doing this with you um we're we got a lot of cool stuff in the works um lots of author interviews coming up later this month um and yeah stay tuned for um more developments from books and bowl but we're excited to share some new things that we're working on with you um in the coming months yay all right well thanks for listening and um, we'll see you all next time bye everybody bye Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Raman. How are folks still racist? I know, right? We're like two decades into the 21st century. Yeah. And second question, where's my jetpack? Well, I can't help you there, but have I got a podcast for you. Modern Minorities is a show where each week, my longtime pal Raman and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah. Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, climate activists, angry Asians, athletes, chefs, writers. Folks who are black, brown, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, comics creator Jean Lunyang, and many, many more. We've even talked about Ramadan, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. Thank you.